Okay, so we are on the fifth round, right, of this class. Okay. So, the Diamond Sutra, we are continuing chapter 14. And I want to pick it up uh, with uh, commentary from the board and then we're going to keep reading. He says, the Buddha now explains why is it, why it is essential to be free of perceptions. Perceptions turn the wheel of samsara. The poison of delusion gives birth to the poison of desire and anger, which in turn gives birth to further delusions. It is delusions that block the blocks our path to Buddhahood. And yet, freedom from perception is still not the defining attribute of the Buddhas or Bodhisattvas. If it were, rocks would be fully enlightened ones. The cold mountain says, Anger is a fire in the mind. It can destroy a forest of merit. If you travel the bodhisattva path, forbearance, strength, tolerance, patience, keeps anger away, or the antidote of anger. And then back to, back to the sutra. Therefore, Subhuti, fearless bodhisattvas should get rid of all perceptions in giving birth to the thought of unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. They should not give birth to the thought attached to a sight, nor should they give birth to a thought attached to a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a dharma. They should not give birth to a thought attached to a dharma, nor should they give birth to a thought attached to no dharma. They should not give birth to a thought attached to anything. And why not? Every attachment is no attachment. Thus, the Tathagata says, that bodhisattvas should give gifts without being attached. They should give gifts without being attached to a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a dog. And then on that the commentary, so Bipolar says, willpower alone cannot succeed in suppressing the poison of anger, much less the perceptions of self or being that gives give birth to anger. Nor can an understanding of the doctrine of emptiness help. Such an ability is only possible through the cultivation of the perfections of wisdom, forbearance, and charity, prajna, samti, and dana, and their counterparts of morality, vigor, and meditation. Again, the Buddha is reminding Subhuti that freedom from perceptions is not the goal but the means. The goal is liberation of all beings. Only by resolving to liberate all beings can bodhisattvas truly free themselves of the perception of being. And only when they are free of the perception of being can bodhisattvas liberate beings. Around this seeming contradiction turns this teaching. So, a few minutes just to examine that. What is this saying about what well, we understand, what at least we have an idea of what it means so far, what the Buddha is trying to tell Subhuti in terms of do not create, do not hold on to any perception whatsoever, any perception, right? Do not dwell, period. But what he's saying here is that it's not enough to, it's not enough to talk about non-dwelling, it's not enough to recognize non-dwelling as a concept, or even to understand non-dwelling 
right? We may even see that as logical after some time, but even that is not enough, <coughs> right? So he talks about cultivating, right? the culti to cultivate the perfection of wisdom. So how do we all giving? How do we do that? The forbearance. Where do we, okay, let me ask you a different, where do we find ourselves in relation to this as practitioners? Well, the one thing that stood out to me that you just read is that we can't do it with willfulness alone. We can't will ourselves <coughs> to let go or to or to study the Dharma, or to do any of this. It needs to be, it needs to be constant, it needs to be repetitive, we need to practice. <coughs> we need to practice. It is in the practice, mm -hmm. right. And what do we encounter in the practice? Everything. <laughs> okay, we encounter thoughts that say, I got it, mm. right? I understand, this is about letting go, mm. right? That's a thought that says, I got it, right? right? And maybe with that, you know, come a lot of reasoning or understanding or explanation, right? That we either tell ourselves or tell others or read about. But it is still devoid of or divorced of practice. Mm -hmm. It's actually, sometimes it takes us out of practice because it gives us the illusion of understanding. And sometimes the more we talk about it, the more we convince ourselves that we, we get it. This is very dangerous, yeah. obviously, right? Yeah. Because we can forego the practice thinking we got somewhere yeah. with it. Yeah. Um, also, um, I see it in terms of practice, our practice. The fact that when these things arise, like anger, um, not only thinking of, okay, that's, it shouldn't be, or, or, you know, like, or even see the anger and dwell into examining my anger, more into move on to uh, apply the antidote. So then see it as a choice. We do have choices, and that's something that we sometimes <coughs> forget. Mm. Like when a situation arises, when, uh, when we relate to each other, it's like, okay, yeah, I, this person is bringing out my anger, but yet, don't get stuck in there and just be like, okay, now this this person is bringing me an opportunity to apply an antidote and, and practice the perfections of patience or whatever it is that the situation. So I think that that could help a little bit in terms of not get stuck in certain. Yeah, <laughs> right. But also not expecting, you know, that the understanding that I think I have will erase future yeah. anger arising. Right? But applying it, it over and over, because that's the goes back to practice. We, yeah. we don't. It's not that. Oh, today I didn't. You know, the antidote worked today. Yeah, great. But then, you know, that doesn't mean it's it's static. Right. You it know, has to be just a constant reminder. It has to be. You said a choice, right? So it has to be by. It, there's got to be volition there, right? Because non-volitional, right? It happens. Those things happen. Yeah. Anger arises, you know, not by choice. It's just, there it is. Or all the other emotions, right? They arise mm -hmm. and there it is. It's just, how do we meet that? How do we, what do I have to do? Where's the vigor that I arise, so that I bring up in me in order to look at that or to raise an antidote to that? 
and that never <laughs> ends. It also in coma uh, is brought up later on, but this is also in a way shedding light on the fact that karma has a very strong perpetual uh, force and energy. So understanding or not understanding, there's still that. Okay. So to to the perfections and again, you know, it's dana paramita, the perfection of generosity, sila paramita, perfection of morality, the precepts, santi paramita, perfection of patience, vidya paramita, perfection of energy, courage, jana paramita, perfection of meditation, and prajna paramita, perfection of wisdom. So those are the perfections we need to keep going back to, keep working. You know, we talk a lot about you know discipline, and this is where discipline is put to the task. I mean, it's not an idea; it comes down to well, actually, it comes down to the willingness to face ourselves, and you know, and, and, and fearless bodhisattvas. It's really to be fearless in, in first and foremost to, in facing ourselves, facing our own habitual energies, and admitting to ourselves that yeah, we got some work to do. I may think I got somewhere, but that's what I have to let go of. The thought that I got somewhere, the thought that I've arrived and I understand, that becomes fuel for further uh, calm, perpetuating calm. So. Okay, so keep going. Um, I mean, I'm reading from the commentary. I don't know if you want to find it or just listen. Yes. How yes. does that create karma? The, the sense that you have you've got an intellectual understanding or conceptual understanding because it's static right karma is in a way although it wreaks havoc it's lifeless because it's not about what's happening it's about what was right and and as such it is static it is statically it sits there in the mind right it sits there in in the, the storehouse consciousness, right, and uh, seeds that manifest at specific times. It just sits there, right? So any thought, any dwelling, perpetuates. Well, dwelling, yes, dwelling right. is another way to say attachment, right? Because right. if you're not attached, how can you dwell? Right? So dwelling is another way to refer <coughs> to attachment. I hold on is I dwell. <coughs> So you're holding on to a concept or a thought. I create it, then and I hold on to it. it. Yeah. Right. Well, what are we attached to if not what we create? Right. Right. If we, you know, we talk about reality as we understand reality as, as ever changing. If it's ever changing, then how is attachment possible? Right. How is fixedness possible if it's ever changing? It's all only possible by creating something and attaching to what we create. Kind of stopping the flow. Or creating an illusion of, illusion of stagnation within a reality of flow. It's an illusion. Mm -hmm. Right? So we're not trying to do anything. All we, all we have to do is recognize how we create illusion and attach ourselves to them and then step away from them. Hence the choice, 
right? Or at least working on it. On that. So, commentary. Shen Yi says, a thought, is, a thought that isn't attached is like the sun and moon moving through space without becoming attached to space and lighting, lighting the mountains and rivers and earth without becoming attached to them. That's a very nice analogy. If the mind can be like this and not become attached to the six sensations or attached to emptiness, this is the mind that isn't attached to anything. So neither form nor formlessness. Not to attach to either one of them. Ordinary people are attached to existence, while followers of the two vehicles, Shravakas, voice hearers, and Pratikya Buddhas, long Buddhas, are attached to non-existence. If ordinary people aren't attached to samsara and followers of the two vehicles aren't attached to nirvana, this is to dwell in unexcelled, perfect enlightenment. Antara Samyak interesting how you know we can we see the repetition over and over and over and over again saying the same thing but it's really not saying the same saying the same it's pointing at the same thing but it's actually saying it in different ways and it's important to hear it in different ways right because well one is because we we hear it in one way over and over again and we think we got it and that can create stagnation in the mind. So to hear it in different ways is to get different perspectives, shed light on different aspects of the same diamond, if you will, right? And then recognize it. Oh, it's that, right? So it shakes up the, the ground a little bit under our feet. So we don't go with the tendency to hang out, to sit, to pitch a tent, to build a house. So we keep moving. Joshua said, I've seen a hundred thousand million beings and all of them are searching for Buddhahood. To find one of them searching for no mind is rare. So how do we do that? How do we seek in a non-seeking way? How do we seek and practice and want to uh, have the desire to deepen without wanting to be someone or someone else, or be somewhere else, or arrive somewhere. Isn't that just the cooperation of awareness? Say more. So I guess in order for us to be able to not get stuck, we, we have to be aware of <coughs> the triggers, the things that started off, the thoughts, or, or the reactions that we have to the things around us, right? Uh, I'm dealing with a lot of stress. So I've been paying attention a great deal to, to stress and how I react to it. Um, and like in this little bit of time off that I took from here, um, that's what I was dealing with. And, you know, I, I had to be aware of the fact that I was stressed. I had to be aware of how I normally react to that stress. Yeah. And then I had to be aware of how to apply my practice to those things. So I feel like <clears throat> without, I feel like there is an order to the process. And, and I think awareness is the first thing. Um, right, shedding light. Yeah. So to, to yeah, and, and, and I think often the, the, the willingness 
the willingness to admit that there are some things here I need to look at rather than convince myself that the habit or the habitual voice is correct. Mm. I know this is what I need to do. I know. How do I know that? How do I know that this is what I need to be doing right now? How I need to react to this right now? Right? Where is it coming from? Is it attached to anything? Well, the funny thing is, I, I find, I find about myself that the things that I need to continue to practice are exactly what we're talking about. These things that have been held onto for so long that you don't even realize you're holding onto them. Yeah. They're from when we were much younger. Yeah. I mean, you know, things that we just now take for granted. And so I see myself in a stress, stressful situation. You know, I, I have the the ability to, to talk to Jushri about it at, at work at times when she sees me like working under stress and you know I start to like self-examine and start to realize this stuff is really really deep deeply rooted yeah. this isn't anything that's new what's new for me is is the is the awareness and is the the ability that I see now because of my practice that I can do something different that I don't have to continue to react the same way that I always have and that talk about shedding light, I mean, I, I'm, I'm tingling because it just it's, it's it's touching something in me. But that's that's what um, we really need to work on is you know where did this come from, and and you know and what do I do about it now? Yeah. Because I don't I oh, yeah I don't want to be I don't want to be stressed out anymore, and I realize it's me doing it. Yeah. You know. And I also have this thing, and I, I don't know if this is related to what we're speaking about, but I have this, this ability to be able to see the stress in other people or a situation and be able to help mitigate that stress for others. Mm. But when it comes to me, it, it's different. It's very, very different. It's not, it's not so cut and dry because of that attachment. Because it's me and it's my attachment. So... You know, often we don't even know that you know that we are vested. We don't even know what we're vested in, mm. but we are vested in something. That's guaranteed. We are vested in something. When we get stuck, we're vested in something. Yeah. Right. When we start to become self-righteous about our opinion or about the way it's got to be this way, mm -hmm. then we are definitely vested in something that we are unwilling to let go. We try to protect. Yeah. And this is how we have to look at. Right? What is it that I'm trying to, and resistance to practice offense and, and often comes up, and I see it, I hear it a lot, resistance to, to, to practice itself. There is something there I, that is showing me that I'm vested. What am I vested? It's not about the practice. Right. It's just the practice is triggering something in me, right? And I want to rebel against it. <clears throat> yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it. For whatever reason, I think that is justifying that I don't like, right? Yeah. That's what we have to look at. Yeah, I could see that. I could see two things that, as you were saying that, one of them was comfort for me, mm. because you get into this stage of comfort. Yeah. And, you know, as we all know, practicing, it takes due diligence. And yeah. We have to put the time in. We got we to show up. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think is an expectation of how things should be. Which goes back to what you were saying earlier about you know how we start to think we should be doing something else or be somewhere else, and um, 
those two things are very, very closely related. And those are the two things that I can, yeah, the most identify right now with, with my, what I'm looking at. That refinement is, is you can't describe it. You can't explain it. You can't imagine it. When you start to practice, you practice for some years, and you know, there is after some time, there's a sense of, oh, I know what I'm doing. You know, I, I get it. You know, I show up, we chant, we do this, we do that, right? We sit, we eat in a certain way. I got it, right? And this is a very important point to, to not get stuck with, right? Either to not be discouraged by and then say, well, this, there's nothing going on and I'm gonna go somewhere else, or to think that I got somewhere with it, mm -hmm. right? So we have to keep going and then when we keep going, it's a plateau. When we keep going, then things start to open up and then we realize this amazing refinement sense of this is endless. I will keep, this will keep deepening for me, or I will keep deepening with it for the rest of my life. I'm never going to arrive anywhere else, which is okay, because that, that has to be put to rest. And this is what he's talking about, you know, to seek without seeking, right? Yeah. We have to put to rest something in us, this restlessness, the restless energy that wants, 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 wants. It has to, we have to quell that. And then take the energy that is not, no longer wasted by that, and apply it to deepen it. It's a much more economical, uh, practical way of practicing. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's searching without searching, right? Yeah, that's the question. Um, so, a perfect example for me is, is this Eno job, and I think anyone who's done it will, will, will know. Um, you know, a, a flow is, is, is moment by moment dwelling. You dwell and then you let go, dwell, let go, let go. So you're always dwelling in every moment, right? And that creates the flow. So it's very similar to the, to the Eno job where you, where you literally dwell in each syllable as you chant and as you sing. And, you know, you, at least for me, I can see myself making the mistake while I'm making it, right? And if you sit in that mistake, then it becomes a train wreck and the entire suture goes off the rails and it's a mess. So you have to, you dwell and then you let go, you dwell, you let go, you dwell, let go, and that's what creates the flow. So, uh, and to me, that is the essence of seeking without seeking and, you know, something about chanting, like you say, oh yeah, we come, we chant, we go, but, but the, the chanting can be a metaphor for actual life itself in the way that you embody each syllable and then let go of that syllable, move on to the next, embody it, let go, embody it, let go, embody it, let go. And then it kind of creates a flow. Um, and, you know, so to me, the, the Eno, singing the Eno job is kind of seeking without seeking. Because there's no, you starting nowhere and you're ending nowhere. And then also practice not dwelling in that, right? So, right. Because, so if, you if you think that I've, I've messed up, and you dwell in that, that becomes a dwelling place. If you yeah. think I did really well, that becomes a new <laughs> right. dwelling place. Yeah. Both are the same. Yeah. <clears throat> it doesn't matter whether you think you suck or you're great. Right. You dwell. Right. You just have to go from one syllable to the next syllable to the next one to the next And then syllable. burn the previous one with the current one. Right. You burn the one that was with the one that is. Right. And right. then if afterwards, you know, you have to look at it, you look at it and you study some more and you practice some more. So there is training, but then you train. Mm -hmm. So even with that, you know, what got you into training is, it doesn't matter, right? because you train. Yeah. So we are teaching ourselves not dwelling. 
Right, exactly. So seeking without seeking or without expecting, I find um, that uh, it works. One thing that helps is when there is curiosity um, that can be sustaining. So I'm feeling a lot of non-curiosity. So, but, <laughs> but, um, but I'm aware of the difference. Okay, so what you're describing is, in a way, comic, right? You're describing the feeling of non-curiosity is the static. Yes, right. very static. And the dynamic is, I'm going to choose to be curious. Well, you keep saying that, and um, uh, <laughs> there are times when I see that I have a choice, and there are a lot of times when I don't see that I have a choice, except, I mean, I can choose on a macro level, I can choose, okay, I'm discouraged, I'm still going to the Zendo, uh, I'm still going to Zogdokasan, I'm still going for my walk, I'm still going to do that. So that's the kind of choices that I can see that I can make, but the mental choices, I don't go. Okay, so the showing up is, is the first step, right? You show up. Right. That's not enough. <clears throat> now that you show up, well, what does it mean? It means something, by the way. To be curious is not a constant, it means something. What does it mean moment by moment? If you have a conversation with somebody, be interested, be curious about this person that you're talking with, right? <coughs> That's what that means at that time. Right. If you are you know, cooking a meal, be curious about that. Right. So it's not it's not abstract concept. No, it has a it's not. real tangible yes. key, right? That's what that means moment by moment. So, right. so you say, okay, I'm, I am practicing a curiosity. What does it mean right now? Right? So when you bring it to what does it mean right now, you're no longer practicing a concept. Right. You are living it. Right. That's what... Okay. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll keep going with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, it was... I went to a place for 13 years. Great place. But it was always the concept of... And that's where I met the Buddhist practice. And it was... It got to the point that, hey, you have to get enlightened before we die. You know, like this is like something that it has to be accomplished and they will make you feel guilty and fewer making, like getting there, getting somewhere. So when I, I was introduced to Buddhism as a some place that you have to get to, right? And then my mind obviously painted and getting enlightened, I, I don't do anything anymore. <laughs> but obviously it wasn't the place, it was my mind seeking for that, um, Obviously, it's in me that was attracting somehow that concept because right. I like it. I really like saying like, "Oh, I'm gonna sit, so then I'm gonna reach enlightenment right. one day, and then do nothing." That day, it's just like, "Ah, the stars will." Right. But then I came here, <laughs> and 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 that's what searching without searching or seeking without seeking. That's what it's, I'm starting to do now, because every time I have, have I come here, or, you know, I practice. I know there's nowhere to go. Like, there, I'm not going to reach anywhere yet, you know. Right. It's still something that I want to I wanna do. You know, I know the importance of my practice and deep inside I understand. And this is, this is it. Yet, um, it's been a, a lot of resistance towards when I sit today, for example, being like, okay, 
I'm not reaching anywhere. There's nothing to get. I don't need to feel this way, samadhi, or whatever concepts are that I learned. So it's been a, quite a practice itself just to understand that, that searching without searching, like with that deep understanding. That there's, I'm not going to get anywhere. Like it's not going to be a final destination. But that has been a new concept since I came here. Right. I'm not going to get anywhere because I can't. Because there's nowhere else. Nowhere else. Right. Because this is it. Not because, oh, well, you know, I'm, yeah. I, I don't get it. I'm never going to get it, right? Because there's another way to uh, proceed. Think that you get right? Because I'm no yeah. good. That's why yeah. I'm never going to get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> right? So that's another dwelling place, right? But, you know, and it, it, is, it is common, actually, to have enlightenment as a goal. And then, of course, we have to ask the question, well, what's the difference between this and saying, I mean, I want to be enlightened, and saying, I want to have $5 million in bank account. Right? What's the difference? There is no difference. There is no difference between the two, right? So it's the same. It's just that I think that if it's enlightenment, it's a good thing. It's a good goal versus, you know, material goal. Well, Five million dollars is not bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always enlightenment. <laughs> How about both? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something I I struggled with as well. You know, the whole searching and searching, and <laughs> well, that that's it. <laughs> that goes without saying. But uh, but the the whole aspiration without becoming acquisitive about it, and um, you know, I've tried to sort of look at Dogen's uh, thing. That, you know, you're already there, and you kind of have to realize that rather than thinking that there's some other place that you have to direct your, yourself towards. Mm -hmm. So that helps a little bit, I think, but it's hard to resist that idea of wanting wanting something, wanting some sort of goal or insight. And I, I don't know if that's completely wrong or that I should ignore that aspiration. Well, it's a good question. It's a good question to examine, but uh, go ahead, you, you go first. Well, just briefly, I didn't want to say anything wrong. I just wanted to mention that sometimes when I think of seeking, I feel like I've lost something. Yeah. And I don't even want to think about seeking. Yeah. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to be with seeking. I just want to be, you know what I mean? But also, the other thing about that, you know, isn't by definition seeking the antithesis of finding? So as long mm -hmm. as I am Who seeing myself as the one who is seeking, I am not. I will not see myself as the one who is finding anything, because I've already, you know, I've already said I am the. I'm a seeker. I'm going to look for something, mm -hmm. which means it's not here, and I don't have it, and I need to have it. I want to have it, and it'll happen later. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what I feel. That's uh, it becomes it becomes problematic sometimes when I start thinking about that. It becomes it becomes a concept or perception, and I become a concept. Yeah. Both, mm -hmm. right? I am as the one who is looking for it, and it, whatever that it is, is a concept in relation to the one looking for it. You know, it's kind of so like when, when that, that student ran into Rumi, right. right? He's looking for Rumi, and Rumi, and they're they're bowing to each other for like I don't know how long, right? But they but they're. There is no seek that that actually is a good demonstration of not seeking, right? Well, it's and actually not it's, finding, it's a good, but just meeting. It's a good, uh, um, it's a good description of appreciation yeah. of that this. That too, but because if we don't appreciate this, then we never find. Right. Well, he's looking for a concept. Yeah, exactly. 
and the concept was shattered mm -hmm. when he died. That's such a memory, yeah. So well, all we can look for is a concept. And, and primary, I guess, is the rejection in seeking. Mm -hmm. Seeking equals rejection of something. I'm not, I'm, I'm seeking for something else. I'm not accepting of this. I want to replace this with something else. I want to replace this one with another one. Because I'm, I'm not accepting of myself as is. <coughs> so, back to the sutra. Moreover, Subhuti Bodhisattvas should practice charity in this manner for the benefit of all beings. And how so? Subhuti. The perception of being is no perception. Likewise, all beings of whom the Tathagata speaks of, speaks of, thus no beings. And how so? Subhuti. What the Tathagata says is real. What the Tathagata says is true and is as he says it is. And is not other than as he says it is. And he speaks of suchness. What the Tathagata says is not false, right? As we chant, this is the truth, not a lie. And it's not because, and it's not the truth that negates other, or negates anything. It's, it's truth that includes all things. Right? It's like, it has no opposite in, in a way, right? It's like saying life as continual, right? Or as a continuum that has no opposition. It's just life. It just keeps going. It manifests in different ways. So we can see it in that way. Moreover, Subhuti, in the Dharma, realized, taught, and reflected on by the Tathagata, there is nothing true and nothing false. So is that a contradiction for us? In the Dharma, right, the Tathagata speaks of, there is nothing, nothing true and nothing false. But what is he saying with that? Just briefly, a few minutes. So everything that you're seeing before you is true. Everything you experience is true, but does it actually exist even? So if it's, I mean, you can't experience anything or see anything or touch anything that isn't true and accurate. But are you perceiving it in a way that's true or if it's not even real, right? If it's emptiness, is it actually false? So if I say true, then I'm raising false as its opposite. If I say false, I'm raising true as its opposite, right? Already there's, there's a there's duality there, mm -hmm. and already I, am, I fell into the second. True or false, secondary. If it's true, then there's nobody there. Nobody is there to say it is true. <laughs> because it's all inclusive. It includes the one who wants to say it's true. But to say it's true is to actually step out of it and create a duality. Or create a perception <coughs> of duality. So if it's true, then why are we seeking for it? If we are true, how can we seek for it? 
I mean, if we are in alignment with the way it is, then that, that's it. That it is what it is. This is, this is it. It's nothing else. Then we start to think about it and create duality. That's what happens. And this is the tendency we have to come back to or recognize again and again and again. The tendency to, to try to step out and examine and analyze. And then from there reject or like or dislike, right? So either we reject it or we're all over it. Yeah. And we have to be open to the possibility that um, what we perceive or what we think we perceive is not necessarily complete and that there could be another perception of the same thing and that in ourselves our perception of the same thing could change and evolve. Um, well, the completeness is inherent. Our ability to experience the completeness varies. Right, so I'm saying so we have to be open to the possibility <clears throat> that it's not stagnant, that it's that we're not hooked into the completeness, to yeah. everything that's there. Yeah, that we're not in alignment, you're saying. <clears throat> that we are, yeah, there is some misalignment there, right? Yeah. But yeah, the Buddha said, you know, uh, talked about says, you know, to recognize that this one here is a stuck axle wheel. It's another way to say that, right? I gotta oil it because it's not moving. <laughs> Basically, this one here is a stock axle wheel. That's mm -hmm. not moving. What do I need to do to, to get this going? How do I lubricate it? And it's kind of like that, the Dharma, the, the teaching is oil. Get moving. Recognize that the stuckness is a perception. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so, yeah. Anyone else? Good. <coughs> so, Bill Porter, comment, comment on that. As with forbearance, so too <coughs> with charity. Again, the Buddha returns to the practice he introduced at the beginning of the sutra. And I'm jumping around a little bit within this chapter to different commentaries. Those who travel the Bodhisattva path must do so for the benefit of all beings. And yet, they must not form the perception of a being, much less a self. Right, so not to form the perception of I am helping you. Right, because if I form that perception, I already form obviously the perception of I in relation to you. I'm the one helping you. Right, that's a creation, much less itself. Obviously, such, teach, such a teaching is likely to be received with a great deal of doubt, <coughs> if not misunderstanding. Hence, the Buddha pauses to insist on the truth of this teaching, lest those who hear it gives give birth to doubt or fear instead of a perception of its truth. So we can actually become upset and doubt the teachings of no-self. How is it possible? I know who I am. I, I see it, I feel it, right? And we can, so we can uh, basically protect, look for ways to protect it. And the ways to protect it sometimes appear as resistant to practice. I don't want to practice. Because if I, I know deep down that if I practice, that will <coughs> eliminate my perceptions. And maybe I won't find myself. 
and I won't find myself is the way to truly experiencing ourselves. Yeah. Now, there's no way to, to jump over that. There is the process of having to lose ourselves in order to realize. And it's all happening now, so it's not later as a concept, right? It is true. It is not that there's no enlightenment like in the, in the Quran, but what could be done about falling into the secondary? It is true that, you know, there is realization, but what could be done about not creating a concept of it? That's where we get trapped. <coughs> and it's true that there is realization, but it's nowhere else but here. And it will never be anywhere. So that's where, the, the, in a way, that's where we get caught up, or that's where we can maybe find uh, some illogical traps, right? That's that, well, you know, I don't like this, and it doesn't work for me, or... And I've said often, you know, that the, the, the more we practice, in a way, the more the resistance builds up. Sometimes it takes a break, and it comes back when we start to doubt <coughs> the practice, or it creates doubt of the practice and then it starts to rev up in our minds. So we have to be watchful. Right? And we, uh, the other thing is we have to keep we have to keep some level of immersion in practice all the time. Some level of immersion. And we all know it that we when we when the momentum dies down and we don't practice as often, we don't show up as often and we don't participate with either reading or listening or whatever conversation we have, then the conventional reality starts to become much louder and a lot more meaningful. And then we become, we feel much more justified, or I don't have time right now to not practice. So we have to be watchful and learn from our own experience. So I'll just keep, I'll keep going with the commentary. While this teaching is not false, neither, it, neither is it true. For, the, for in order to be true, there must be some standard against which to judge it. Right? Do not judge by any standard. I don't know if you, you recognize it, I hope you do, but a lot of this is actually found in our sutras, in our, in our simple sutras, they're not very long, but we chant that uh, on a regular basis, and this sutra actually sheds light on what we chant, with the hot sutra, right, same as Lupa said, Sandokha, it's the same thing, in a shorter version, right, more condensed version, so do not judge, create, create standards, that's, standards create duality. But there is no standard of truth and falsehood for the perfection of wisdom. The perfection of wisdom means an end to truth and falsehood. Every truth is dependent on conditions and in time becomes false. Right? Even science, actually. Right? Something is realized and then later on it's like, no, no, that's not true. It was true five years ago or a week ago, but now, now we realize a different truth. So, do you want to say a word about that as a scientist? <laughs> Sometimes that's true. 
Sometimes it holds. What holds? Science. For how long? Well, some truths we've held for a long time. Einstein's truths we've held for over 100 years now, and we're proving more. Wasn't that the two uh, Dutch scientists that a uh, few years ago? Uh, the Hadron Collider? Yeah, the they, they took something out, some of uh, Einstein's theories and they proved it as not true a few years back. There's some aspects of it, I think, it, in regards to like space time, like relativity yeah. stuff, but I mean, that, and that's just because there's incongruency between the quantum world and mm -hmm. classical mechanics. So, so the, in a way, to recognize the limit the limited aspect of unknowing and to recognize that there is always further and further uh, expansion of that knowing, right? So, and that's what drives science, right? The, the, the not knowing drives science, not, 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 not the knowing. It's the not knowing that keeps it moving. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything else. You have a bubble of something that you understand and then you break out of that bubble and yeah. understand something farther and realize how much you actually don't know about it. There's the continual learning process. Yeah, and it's okay too, right? Because that's the reality. There is a limitation of what we can perceive through mind, through thought, through research, right? So we deepen it. Yeah. And then even in this case in particular, it's interesting um, how we kind of understand knowledge and was it like there's a good chunk of it that's kind of based off of a deduction of certain particles existing even though we've never perceived them or witnessed them, uh, like up quarks and down quarks, I forget which quark it is, but <laughs> so many things, um, you know, even our cell phones are designed with the assumption that they exist, but if we come to find through the Hadron Collider or whatever, through observation that maybe they don't or there's others that exist suddenly, the, it's not that it's right or wrong, it's just the universe expands, uh, or the universe of understanding. And that's an easier way to do research, right? Yeah. To, to step back from the absolutes of right and wrong and to be open to different possibilities. Yeah. Not to dwell, but research. It's that famous line that gets thrown out about the Dalai Lama of uh, if we come to find reincarnation as false, then we won't believe in reincarnation anymore or something like that. But um, yeah, let's just kind of be willing to, to drop everything. Anybody else want to say something? Yeah. I think whether it's science or um, people of faith or anything else, you people get attached to what they've come to believe over many years, sometimes hundreds of years. And then when that's questioned, they don't like it. Right. And it's not just, I mean, it's not just people of faith. Or, mm -hmm. You know, it's not just, it's, it's everybody that gets attached to their own concept of what it's supposed to be and what it looks like and what they've discovered. But then new discoveries can come in and new things can come up and they'll be attached to still their own, oh, no, 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 it's definitely like this. But it's not because they're attached to their own thought. So to take, uh, to take the, the, the researcher out of the research. So we talk about it like it's a very easy thing, but when you maybe spent 10 years of your life on something, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars on something, maybe you have a whole team of people working on something, and mm -hmm. you really think you have an idea that works and you want it to go forward, sure. it's really challenging to let go of. Yeah. Important to do so, but... 
Yeah, that's all I'm saying. All I'm saying is it's important <laughs> to be able to see that as it, it's just another concept. It's, it's hard because you get attached to what you've done. You get attached to the years that you've spent on it. You have a you get lot attached yeah, to it. Yeah. Right, it's, so that's the just, question. But that's the thing. Uh, you have, you talk about time and money, but who is the person? Is there somebody who's best? These are the best um, scientific discoveries, actually, when people are willing to go against dogma and turn everything mm -hmm. on its head. Yeah. Like something that people take as absolute truth and flip it around. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of things in Zen, we talk about like, oh, it's easy, we're just going to yeah. not attach to it and let it go, and it's going to be mm -hmm. fine, but there's actually... And there's a whole different science that <laughs> 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 gets discovered. It's it happened to, to children, too. Take the role of the observer. Yeah. It's, really, um, it's really easy to hold on to that story, and that's why we don't have as many breakthroughs as we should, because you get very attached to mm -hmm. what you have. Maybe your livelihood even depends on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think there's something that at least out of that mentality, for me anyways, translates to, to sitting of this kind of idea of a guiding principle. Like sometimes that's the lubricant uh, to get me to sit in the first place mm -hmm. is this like to show up, you know, why show up then? And if you have something that you're holding on to, sometimes that is the, 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 the North Star kind of thing, the guiding, like that at least I'm going somewhere, even if I feel completely lost at sea. So the fact that that could also be the very thing holding you back, or, or the knife, you know, that 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 stabs you is, is really difficult to wrestle with. I think uh, for me, you know, why do anything? You brought up curiosity before, and that's something that it's like, why, you know, try to figure out anything about this world and how it works through right. science if you're not curious? It, that's the the lubricant in that situation. But if you're not curious, then why do anything? I don't know. It's something I'm really I struggle to reconcile. Well, the, the answer here is to, to be of benefit to others. Yeah. Why? To be of benefit. To, we don't really answer why, but the to be of benefit to others takes care of the why. Yeah. Right. The question is just in a way absorbed into the action. What else are we gonna do? Mm -hmm. Right. What else are we gonna do? I guess I look at it also then it's um, yeah, as a personal hang-up of sometimes where especially with showing up you can add a little bit of undue importance on things of everything's riding on this, everyone is counting on me or something to show up and it blocks that ability to kind of have that honest dialogue that like I don't have it in me today, <laughs> like I don't, I don't have enough straws as the saying goes. But, um, but to do it anyways, and yeah. and, um, and to realize I do have it in me. Yeah. Right. To realize you know I don't have it in me. I don't, you know you know I'm, I'm really tired or whatever. Right. And then you do, mm -hmm. and then you teach yourself something. Wait a minute. You know this mm -hmm. is you know yeah I have a lot in me that I don't give credence to that I don't even connect with that I don't trust. There's a lot that we don't trust mm -hmm. within us. It's a different understanding. Because no, I think of it in relation to like self-care yeah. and things of that nature. And it's, you know, there's something important about lending a voice to that kind of feeling of, I don't, I'm tired, I'm beat up, I don't have it in me to, because so much uh, energy gets put into squashing that voice a lot of the time because it's, we can't have it. But sometimes if you let it have too much, then you withdraw more. <coughs> 
and you draw I don't the know soul. how to leave space forever. You draw the sword of wisdom and you cut that and you move on. Mm -hmm. You just cut that. Yeah. Not reject. Mm -hmm. But that cutting just snaps you out. Yeah. It's cold blooded. And it's simple. So, uh, back to the Sutra Subhuti. Oh, yeah, raise it. <coughs> you blend very well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so one, it seems that the moment, if you are so lucky as to actually be in the moment <coughs> and be in this, um, not related to the past or the future, um, but it seems most of our human moments um, have a past and a future. And, um, and the choice that we're talking about is kind of a disruption of being in the present. Right? If you make a choice, it's something beyond just being in the moment. Um, so what, what George was saying before about um, these things of our past, um, it seems that the moment has towards the past, all the traces of ourselves, all, all that we have done in the world that leave traces and that keep um, expressing ourself, whether or not we still experience a self, um, but the self is out there. Um, that's one way that I understand karma. Karma is all the traces of ourself that are in the world and that keep bringing that old self or whatever self back to us. And towards the future is upaya, and upaya is a way of acting with no self. So upaya, if you can actually accomplish such a thing, um, would be um, an end of karma, because there's no self-leaving traces anymore. You're just acting in, um, in the way of the world. So there's no, uh, like acting as a scientific particle, right, uh, which leaves no self-trace, just the, the trace of oneself, <coughs> so that um, um, one way then of dealing with karma, upaya seems to be a, a, a key to all of this, I guess it's a short way of saying all of this, is that upaya has this possibility, and I don't know if we can experience it as more than a possibility, but when they keep saying um, we should be working toward the liberation of all beings, I think that's to be focusing on upaya and to see ourselves as um, part of, um, of this whole that we've been talking about and um, um, seeing our action, whether it's curiosity or whatever, in this sense of um, what does the moment require, what does the, um, you know, what's happening in the situation and how to, How do I see that I can work for the benefit of all beings at this moment? Um, so Paya seems to be a, you mentioned it earlier, um, one of the most critical pieces of all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, because Upaya is about paying attention, because no attention, no Upaya. Right? And paying attention disrupts the flow of cause. But it's an attention that minimizes the self rather than yeah. exalts the self, right? Yeah. So it's kind of a moving from karma to upaya might be the big way of looking at the picture. Right. It's attention to what is and attention to this. And if you really look at this, you don't find you. Mm -hmm. You cannot find yourself here. 
you can find yourself in what was or what will be as a thought, but not here. And the Paya is always about this. So it's a good gateway. But we'll talk about karma. Karma is coming up. Right? So we're going to talk about it. It always does. It always does. <laughs> good, no escape. Uh, so, Subhuti, imagine a person who enters a dark place and who can't see a thing. He's like a bodhisattva ruled by objects, like someone practicing charity ruled by objects. Now, Subhuti, imagine a person with eyesight at the end of the night, when the sun shines forth, who can see all manner of things. He's like a bodhisattva not ruled by objects, like someone practicing charity not ruled by objects. So, read that and then we can open it up again from the, the world of objects is neither true nor false but when we think of it as true we blind ourselves to the to its illusory nature and when we think of it as false we blind ourselves to its usefulness when we see this world of objects as neither true nor false we are no longer controlled by objects including such objects as a self or a being a dharma or a mind and we can finally see and know what is real. Thus, in contrasting the charity of someone attached to objects and someone not attached to objects, the Buddha reminds us that the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva uses objects as expedient means in the liberation of others, but is not controlled by them. For only a Bodhisattva not ruled by objects is able to see how best to practice charity for the benefits of all beings. Thus, a bodhisattva uses truth that is neither true and nor false. This is very packed. <laughs> right? So, what does it mean to be ruled by objects? Any thought? Yes. The five million dollars. <laughs> to be ruled by the external externals around you. To to let them dictate what you do, what your actions will be, what you what your thoughts will be and how you interact with others and how you affect the world around you. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you would receive good, but what I'm seeing here, like, since the beginning of when we started speaking, is here we have a million of options, right? Endless options. It's when you say, don't think that you are right or you know everything because you don't know anything, because we have a thousand options. When somebody is sick and they say, you know what, you're going to die. And then at the end, he's, he or she survived. Why that happened? And other person that had the same thing died. Because it's endless options and all the bodies are different. And it's the same with everything. Everything is different. Everything can happen. Like, it's just faith in how you take the things and how you see the things and how you act at that moment. So if you do good, you will receive good. So where is the light? At the end of the time. At the end of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it speaks of, you know, as walking in the dark versus walking in the daylight, right? So seeing objects, not being bound by or not being trapped by, ruled by objects. So what is that light? It's you. You can, you can be walking in the worst scenario and it's all dark. But if you see light and you have faith and you believe, it is there. 
So the first of the Eightfold Path is right understanding. Right? Correct understanding, right understanding. Right? So the light of wisdom, seeing things as they are. Seeing beyond the conceptions or beyond what we would conceptualize, right? Seeing ourselves beyond the way we see ourselves, beyond what we think about ourselves. Seeing you beyond what I think about you. Can I see you directly? Can I bypass my thoughts of you while I am seeing you? Because it has to be on the go, it has to be real, right? So it's not, you know, so when we are out and about doing whatever we're doing, can I see this, whatever is this, going on outside, can I see this directly? And seeing things as they are is actually not seen. Right? Because the, the seer and the, what is being seen, what is being looked at, right? Seeing is those two are not two. So the seer and the object that is being looked at unify. And that's seeing things as they are. Well, as I said, those who look for me in form see me not. Those who look for me in sound hear me not. Why? Because we are ruled by objects. Because we are ruled by what we see. And that's not difficult to understand, obviously, because our opinions begin by hearing, seeing, touching, smelling. That's what stirs it up and strengthens it. And that's the challenge of our practice, to communicate directly with what's going on, with reality. So to not be ruled by objects. And he says, you know, it's, it's neither true nor false. Right? Thus, in contract, contrasting with the charity of someone attached to objects, someone not attached to objects, the Buddha reminds us that the Bodhisattva uses objects as a clear means. This is where upaya comes in, right? This is where, actually, without working on it this way, there is no upaya. There's only perpetual karma. Right? That's what you were trying to say, right? That that's all there is. And the karma just perpetuates itself. False. One poor, this is actually very interesting, one poor said, ordinary people are unwilling to empty their minds. They're afraid they'll fall into emptiness, unaware that their own minds are already empty. The fool gets rid of phenomena and not the mind. The wise gets rid of the mind and not phenomena. Right, so, so you know, we say that form is no other than emptiness, emptiness is no other than form. Well, what are we seeking? if not in, in the form, right? Because form is formlessness, or is essentially formless. So why, why get rid of it? Why turn against, why, yeah, why let, what is it that we let it go of anyway, right? If it is essentially nothing, then how can we let it go? So it's, it's interesting because to let go of something, we have to grab it first. So we grab it and then we try to let it go instead of looking at why am I grabbing this? Not how do I let this go? 
Why am I holding on? It's a better question to, to work with. The Bodhisattva mind is like space. The Bodhisattva gives away everything outside and inside. Such a great, such great renunciation is like walking with a candle before you. You can't get lost because the light of wisdom shines forth and it shows the way. Not to you, but it just shows the way because it is the way. You can't get lost. Lesser renunciation is like walking with a candle to one side or behind you. You're bound to fall into a ditch. I've walked with it behind me. <laughs> what? I've walked with it behind me, metaphorically speaking. And it gets dark, and of course, we bump into things and we fall into a ditch. And, and then we get warped. <laughs> and we get trapped. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So, to, to, in a way, to, to mobilize wisdom means to shine the light of wisdom or to see reality as it is moment by moment, or even to raise that intention. To see reality as it is. That's the antidote. Yeah. <laughs> I, I struggle with the neither true nor false aspect of it. That's that's very hard for me to um, to wrap my mind around. You know, I mean, I, I understand what it's a type of upaya to say that it's neither true nor false, but it's it's just very hard. Uh, to accept that when you're trying to get to the truth to some extent, right? I mean, the, the intention is to, is to find the truth. And um, when they're saying, well, it's, it's neither true nor false, it just seems to add another layer of complication or difficulty. I mean, yeah, we're trying to keep you engaged. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, actually, Shakespeare said that too. Nothing is either true or false, it's just the mind makes it so. Yeah. Right? So the, the, the true or false is really it's based on our perception, it's based on our standards. Right. What is true for you is, wrong, is false for another person because it's about standards. It's about the way you perceive reality, right? Uh, as opposed to somebody else who may perceive it completely differently, right? And then for that person, it will be the, the other way around. Right? And, it's, and it's, not, it's not negating morality. It's not negating, it's just, you know, morality is, of course, you know, it's one of the perfections we practice. But it's just saying, do not dwell. If I say false, then there is the other side of that. That's why there is Mu. That's why Mu is such an important command. Because it takes care of that. Because you actually recognize underground what is not seen and heard, but is supporting what is seen and heard. Without the ground, nothing, nothing is there, right? Because nothing is supporting anything, right? Mm. How about looking at the ground that does not differentiate true and false? It's beyond true and false. It's, it's, it's true and false are, in a way, you know, it's, it's just, when you think of it, it's just like one giant container, right? Just another way to describe it. Within that container, there's false, there's true, there's you, there's me, there's tea, there's cake, whatever. It's all within the same thing, vast space. Okay. It's the spaciousness of it that gets that we don't know what to do. So you say I can't wrap my round, my mind around it. You're trying to wrap mind around <laughs> <laughs> wrap your mind around space, but you are space while you're trying to 
figure it out or wrap your mind around it, it is you. Beyond duality, beyond the duality of true and false. Yeah. But that's still true, isn't it? <laughs> in a sense. I mean, if it includes true and false, it, it, it's maybe a higher level of true. Capital T true. Capital T true, maybe. <laughs> or no. It is oh, by by being non-dual, it's not concerned with being true. We are concerned with looking for something, so we, we look for it, right? So we practice it, but there is no concern. There is no question. You try to satisfy a non-question. Because essentially there is no question, right? We question it and we look for an answer, but what if there is no question? Doesn't that quiet the mind? Yeah. And when the mind is quiet, you can practice. That's the point, right? Then you can really practice. Yeah, I guess it all goes back. I mean, what is the point of practice? If it's not to realize the non-dual. There is no point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sit with that for a few minutes. I have to say, you know, when, 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 when I actually recognized that there is no point, it was such a relief. <laughs> it was such a relief. It was like, well, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to become anything. Isn't that a relief? And then you can really do right, and then right, because you because you're not wasting energy. And that's where I get hung up, though, is that when you are free to do whatever you want, then you get overly concerned with what we say at the end of chanting: of, you know, "Do not squander your life." It, I guess it then it, if a, you're approaching it, then maybe ju not judging by any standards, every motion is not squandering it. It's just a different. Well, what does it mean to not squander your life? Yeah. Let me ask you. you know, like, I don't want to. You know, you don't. You don't want to just. You know, you could spend a lifetime in suffering. Yeah, I, I guess you know the most of every moment for me is kind of. Pay attention, appreciate your life. How's that? Exactly. Do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just there's a, a part missing, <laughs> which is the like I guess maybe is the karma. But what uh, take it was saying like. Yeah, I, it's maybe once you become a practice, it becomes, I don't want to say easier, but to catch things of, you know, judging people or things that arise and you're like, oh, no, I'm not holding on to this. But what about those that are deep rooted inside that was maybe you were, you grew up with those beliefs, with those things, or it comes from past, maybe, you know, let's just even go farther, like past lives, the things that are so in you that it's hard to see them obviously practice helps to once in a while like hey here you go this is remember this and then we go back to it right. but i feel that's that is just for me i don't think i ever yet experienced seeing things the way they are because what is seeing things the way they are like i see things and still there is a level of very deep something that it's not not me 
in, I don't even know how to put it in words. That's how hard it is. Well, there's residual energy It's there. like deeper that I don't, karma, like I don't what? understand my karma. So maybe things are happening. I'm like, wait, like, you know, and, and, but it's stronger. Like it's way, it feels like it's way stronger than yeah. just understanding like, oh, you know, Paya or the, like seeing the way, seeing things the way they are, I, it's, it's extremely like, we actually do experience it. We do experience it. It's just that it's so short-lived, and it's for a split second, and then right away the mind comes and then starts to comment. And when it starts to comment, we know there are interpretations, and then we become, and then we actually get lost in that. Right? We become much more interested in our own commentaries yeah. than what's going on. All this is saying: be more interested in what's going on not so interested in what you think about what's going on. Okay. So I'll work on that for a little while, yeah. right? Try to make it a practice, experiment mm -hmm. with that. Stay, 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 right? Stay with what's going on. Watch the mind moving and let it, right? Don't argue with it, let it move. It's just that don't find it so interesting. Don't find yourself so interesting. <laughs> okay. That's easy. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, sometimes saying I'm, I'm boring is the same thing as saying I'm interesting. I'm interested, right? It's the same thing. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Because I am still creating a perception of myself. Whether I hate it or love it, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. It's, not, it's not different. Right? Yeah? Uh, furthermore, Subhuti, so we're finishing this chapter. If a noble son or daughter should grasp this Dharma teaching and memorize it, recite it, master it, and explain <coughs> it in details to others, details to others, the Tathagata will know them Subhuti by means of his Buddha knowledge, and the Tathagata will see them Subhuti by means of his Buddha vision. The Tathagata will be aware of them Subhuti, for all such beings produce and obtain an immeasurable, infinitely, infinite body of merit. And uh, Bill Porter says here that the word merit is related to our word for memory. Merit is the memory of our good deeds, but only deeds free of memory can transcend the confines of space, time, and mind, and lead to all beings, lead all beings to Buddhahood. The merit from believing, grasping, and explaining this teaching to others has no limit because it is free of concept of self and other. Such merit is equivalent to wisdom itself, for it illuminates the ignorance of the world. How could the Tathagata not be aware of those responsible for the transformation of darkness into light? Also, the Tathagata is aware of them, for by means of their attainment, their future Buddhahood becomes evident to all other Buddhas, for they all share the same body. And just to finish on that commentary, Zhuangxia said, where, where is such, where is that much merit and virtue to be found? And the answer is nowhere. Do not be attached. If you become attached, you will not find it anywhere. If you do not become attached, it is right here. So in a way, what he's saying here is, is what we talk about, you know, transmission, right? We talk about um, 
the aliveness of the tradition. And that's so, so realizing and reciting and, and chanting it or, or sharing it with others is continuing the teachings, right? So it makes this, what we call the bloodline, flow through us. So we become a continuation of the practice. So by becoming a continuation of the practice, we are recognized by Buddhahood. Not by the guy, but by Buddhahood itself. Not that, you know, he sends us an email, so, I see you. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Right, yeah. You've been added to the list. Right, it's just that it's the same, we share the same realization because it's the same thing. And it's actually important, you know, to, 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 to look at it this way, because then if we understand it this way, we're not trying to become it. We're not trying to, you know, what is the party line? Let's all, you know, chant the party line. That's not the point. We are a living manifestation of Buddha. Is that how we live our lives? Is that how we practice it? Can we move on or anything else? So, chapter 15. <laughs> okay, furthermore, Subhuti, if a man or a woman renounce their self-existence during the morning as many times as there are grains of sand in the Ganges, and likewise renounce, renounce their self-existence during midday as many times as there are grains of sand in the Ganges, and renounce their self-existence during the afternoon as many times as there are grains of sand in the Ganges, and renounce their self in the evening. Okay. So he says... In this manner, for many hundreds and thousands of millions and trillions of kalpas, and someone heard this Dharma teaching and did not reject it, the body of merit produced as a result would be immeasurably, infinitely greater. How much more so if they not only wrote it down, but grasped it, memorized it, recited it, mastered it, and explained it in details to others. So what's happening? What is he really saying? What is he comparing, actually, to practicing the Dharma, to reciting this, reciting the teachings? He's comparing, he says, to renounce what? Renunciation of what? Self-existence. You can do it over and over and over again, right? You can, and obviously he's saying it to Subhuti, because Subhuti, that, that was the practice. So, you know, if, if we look at the Mahayana teaching, you know, uh, and, the, and the Theravada Hinayana teaching back then, then you look at it this way and you see the, the large vehicle and the small vehicle. And he's saying it doesn't matter. You can let go and let go and let go all day long. It's not going to be equivalent to what you will realize from practicing, from reciting the sutra. So is he selling the sutra? What is he doing? Any thoughts, suggestions? Try. <laughs> what is he comparing? So, so he talks about letting go, right? You can let go. So to go against the self, in a way, when you think about objects, right? To to be attached to objects, to be ruled by objects, right? If I think that I am ruled by objects and and I am getting in my own way then the conclusion will be to go against me, 
but this body has to be let go of, right? So maybe, so an asceticism was a big thing, right? And the Buddha himself experienced that, right? He was an ascetic. And he tried that. He went against his own body, his own physical existence. So we can see that as renunciation of the body. And he said, that doesn't work. In comparison to what? Does it mean to recite the sutra, well, to memorize it, to share it with others? Embodying it. Embodying to embody the practice, to embody the Dharma, to actually be a living manifestation of that truth of no truth. Right? The truth of no truth. To be a living manifestation of non-dwelling. Right? By being a, a living manifestation of non-dwelling, what is it that we need to go against or not? So to try to, you remember the flowers with the, you know, the Vimalakirti Sutra? Yes, that's what actually, I was just trying to remember his name and how to say it. <laughs> but yes, that's exactly what came to my mind. Yeah, yeah, the, that the, the arhats were trying to shake off the flowers that yes. were showered on them by, you know, from, from by the yeah. gods. It's like, you know, we, we don't hold on to it. Yeah, then why are you holding on? <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, yeah. you know, the Velcro has two sides, you know? <laughs> You, what are you doing to hold on to this? It's not why is this attached to me. Right. I'm attached to it. Right. So, any other example of him being able to go into brothels and being able to wear fancy clothes and, and uh, right. eat what he wants, when he wants, and all that kind of stuff? Because he embodied it. Because he understood that there, there was no Because it was beyond the truth, the true or false. Same with Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus used to hang out everywhere, right? right. Because he was beyond right. true or false. Because yeah. Yeah. he wasn't, he, he did not dwell. And by not dwelling, it's all good. Right. But again, not, it's important to, 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 again, stress the point. It's not, there's no morality. It doesn't go against morality or, you know, or, or practice of morality. Right? It's just we have to understand that this too can be uh, something to attach to. And morality could be something we attach ourselves to and then we become self righteous. So. In the commentary, people says, in the previous chapter, the Buddha told Subhuti that. Practicing the paramitas of wisdom, forbearance, and charity was possible only if the practitioner was free of such delusions as a self. In this chapter, he anticipates those who might take this to mean to get rid of the self, which is logical, right? I mean, and so in a way, he's addressing the way we might perceive what he taught so far. So he's saying, don't let go. Actually, he's saying letting go is showing you that you're attached, that you're creating something, that there is already a perception of something to be let go of. Just watch, right? And that's the logical conclusion. That you know, that's how the mind thinks. To sacrifice the self on the altar of some deity or cause, or to throw the self into the black hole of nihilism. Although the Buddha says such actions do produce certain amount of merit. 
he once again compares the greater merit produced by believing and share, well, maybe, maybe trusting and sharing this teaching with others. Anybody wants to comment on that? Or should we keep going? Okay. So, uh, in the commentary, Shen Jung says, the Buddha was concerned that his disciples might become attached to the perception of forbearance and uselessly give up their body without the slightest benefit to their own nature or the nature of others. Hence, he brings, up, he brings this up in chapter 13 and again here. And Sheng Yi says, before noble son or daughter hears and upholds this sutra, about Rajna, they don't understand that all dharmas are empty. They view the five skandhas as their body and their life, and as their life. But when they give away their body and life, the perception of a self that gives, and the perception of the five skandhas life that is given, remain. So we, if we practice, if we don't practice correctly, our practice can actually strengthen with that which we're trying to free ourselves from. Right? If we don't practice correctly. Or if we don't keep examining the way we practice. As long as the mind has a, an object and a subject, right? It is, deluded, it is a deluded mind. Or it is a mind that is attached to duality. Of, of, of creates, produces duality. And the five skandhas, form, sensation, perception, mental formations, and constructs. So, back to the sutra. Furthermore, Subhuti, inconceivable and incomparable is this Dharma teaching. This Dharma teaching spoken by the Tathagata, Subhuti, for the benefits of those deeds who set forth on the foremost of paths, for the benefit of those beings who set forth on the best of paths. For if someone grasps, grasps, memorizes, recites, and masters this Dharma teaching and explains it in details to others, the Tathagata will know them, Subhuti, by means of his Buddha knowledge. And the Tathagata will see them by means of his Buddha vision. The Tathagata will be aware of them, for all such beings produce a body of merit that has no limits. A body of merit that is inconceivable, incomparable, immeasurable, and boundless. For all such beings as this Subhuti likewise, wear enlightenment <coughs> upon their shoulders. And how so, Subhuti? This Dharma teaching cannot be heard by beings of lesser aspiration, not, not by those who mistakenly perceive a self, nor by those who mistakenly perceive a being, a life, a soul. For beings who lack the Bodhisattva aspiration cannot hear, grasp, memorize, recite, or master this Dharma teaching. Moreover, Subhuti, whenever this sutra is explained, that, that place will be honored. Whether in the realm of divas, humans, and asuras, that place should be honored with prostration and circumambulation. That place shall be like a stupa. So, what is this saying, this, those last couple of paragraphs? There's some important points here that he brings up. 
doesn't mean to wear it on your shoulder. Or to shoulder it. means to, 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 to put in the effort, to, to do it, to embody it. So, you know, to embody the practice of, of you know, of non-dwelling, of, of, you know, seeing, of, of not fixing things, not fixing things across time and space, right? Because that's, that can be an obstruction when you see something a certain way and then you always see it that way and to dwell. So it, it basically means, I think, by example, to show the practice in your daily actions. You know, Xie, uh, let me try to pronounce this, Xie Ling Yun says, to shoulder means to accept the task of going about spreading this among others so that it persists for a thousand years. To be, to embody being the living link that we'll keep this going. Right. That's the responsibility. So does it work? Does it work for us? I mean, do we feel this? Or do we practice just so we can <coughs> feel better or reach enlightenment and free ourselves from what we think is uh, obstructing us or in inhibiting us in mm -hmm. our lives? That's why it's so difficult, right? Because someone can't tell you you have to come to it yourself. You have to come to the realization of the embodiment of the flow of your life yourself. Um, and that's what makes it so difficult. You know, I think because as we fix ourselves in the daily routines of life, um, we become stagnated. And when we become stagnated, then, you know, we become inverted, right? People are inverted. They follow after things. Um, they lose themselves. And right. After things. Yes. Yeah. So the... And that's what's so hard about it, because no one can, no one can tell you or show you how to do it. You know, you have to come to it, you know, yourself. And that's why, you know, the practice is the way that it is. And that's why it's so sometimes so frustrating and difficult, because um, it really is up to you. You know, we have tools, right? We have the liturgy, we have the sutra, we have teachers, we have right. sashin, zazenkai, and you know super chopsticks, we have all that, right? But, you know, and they're all tools to learn this, but no one can show it to you. Yeah. And that's good, <laughs> yeah. right? That's actually good because, you know, what, you know, when you think about basic instructions, right, somebody shows up, they're given basic instructions, you know, and kind of, you know, they know roughly what to do and they follow other people. But that's it, you know, most of the time, what do we do? We work with ourselves. We work with, right? We provided each other the, the place to look inwardly and walk alone. Walk the path alone, the path of practicing together. But you're right, nobody can do it for you. Also, as we're um, growing in our practice, the more that you become grounded in who you are, it's reflecting to other people, and so it kind of reminds people of mm -hmm. that place in themselves. So while we have to do the work and do it ourselves, I think we all kind of grow in um, 
behind each other at the same time. Yeah, right. Essential. The togetherness is essential because then it, without that, very quickly we lose the momentum, we lose the practice, we lose the, the tenacity. Yeah. So, and a bit bold comments. It says the reason the merit from understanding and transmitting this teaching to others exceeds all other forms of charity is because it is devoid of any characteristics by means of which we might conceive of, of it and thus compare it to some other teaching. And, and I highlighted this line, especially what he's saying, it's devoid of any characteristics. So, you know, to compare, and people sometimes ask, is that the best way? Is that the only way, right? And that question shows uh, um, lack of understanding or lack of depth, right? Because if we do understand it deeply, then there are no comparisons. That's why it's difficult to understand Dogen saying, this is the only way. This is the only way. There is no other way. And then, of course, it sounds like, well, well, how can you say that? Look at this path, look at that path, look at that path. Uh, and the mind automatically compares. But what he's saying, the, the characteristic, the void of all characteristics, because it is not it, right? The way what we see is not, or what we think about what we see is not what we see. Right, so you guys chant, I don't like chanting. But what do you know about that? What is it that you, th you think we're doing? Right, that's, that's something that does not actually exist, but we make it so. We create it, we superimpose it on what we hear. You hear a bunch of people reciting something, so there's a sound. That's all it is, it's a sound. So we, we superimpose our own ideas on it and it becomes something, the perception. And then what we react to is what we create of it. And it takes a long time to actually understand that and to be open to, to the possibility that, or, or to be open to opening, to, to be able even to accept the possibility that maybe I'm not hearing something. It's hard to describe it, but it begins with willingness. It begins with cultivating the willingness to not trust what we think. That's what or, the, or the willingness to not know, to accept not knowing. Right. The willingness to trust what we don't know. So the characteristics are not in what we see, they are in us, in our perception. So, and it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's a challenge that I, I encounter often talking to people and people get discouraged, people get encouraged. And a lot of it happens because of our own perceptions, because of our own opinions about practice, which is all good as long as we keep practicing. If we keep practicing, then those experiences can be very useful for us as we deepen the practice or the understanding. So it's not wrong to be discouraged. It's not wrong to think something about a chant or a 
bow or the way we hold the, the hands or whatever. Why do we have opinions? No big deal. So a few more minutes and we're going to wrap this up. I'm reading from the commentary. Uh, St. Charles says, Clearly the merit possessed by this teaching surpasses the realm of the mind. Hence, it cannot be conceived of by the mind. Because we, we actually, in a way, we are limited. Our perceptions are limited. We're not limited, but our perceptions are limited. And it surpasses the realm of language. Transmission outside of words and letters, right? Hence, it cannot be discussed through words. The foremost of path is the one that reaches everywhere. The best of path is the one that surpasses all other paths. Are we on the same page about that? Or do we, do we think that we are uh, expected to buy that this is the best? in comparison to something else. It is the best, without comparing to anything else. Once we start to compare it, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's false. But if you don't compare it, it's the best there is. Because it's everything there. Because there's nothing else. Because it includes all things. Because nothing includes all things. Something starts to create separation. But nothing cannot create separation. It's quite amazing. <laughs> anyway, uh, it surpasses language. And here we are talking. Uh, Tung Lee says, the Mahayana is both provisional and absolute. For example, the elementary teaching of the Mahayana is provisional, while the final, instantaneous, and perfect teachings are absolute. This sutra is not, this is, this is actually important, this sutra is not only provisional, but also absolute. By setting forth on it, one enters the final, instantaneous path. Continuing on, one enters the perfect path. This is called setting forth on the best of paths. That's why this sutra is so praised in, in the Zen tradition. Because it really covers all bases. It takes care of everything. Right? It covers everything. You know, it sheds light. I mean, I, I, I find it very encouraging, especially commentators, very encouraging to so lose that faith, that spark. You go back and read a bit of the commentaries and it brings it back. Yin Shun says, the question isn't simply is one willing to undertake this, but is one able to undertake this? Thus, those who set forth on the foremost of path must believe this most profound of teachings and undertake such a journey out of selfless compassion and complete it by helping others without limit. For perseverance, discipline, determination. Shane Yi says, ordinary people think samsara exists, hence they cannot get free of samsara. 
create. We create, okay, actually when we create nirvana, we create samsara. When we create samsara, we create nirvana. Right? The one creates the other. And that's why we cannot, that's why we're trapped. Because we already defined our state of being. We defined what we're at. And we defined what we're not. And then we want to go from where we're at to where we're not. Yes. Yeah, I always had a trouble. I always had trouble with the, with the, the line, Nirvana is already here. Right? Because I never felt like that I was there. Right. Right? But that's what that is, you know. Nirvana is already here, so there is no Nirvana, there's no Samsara. It could be, you could substitute Nirvana for any word. Right. The flower is already here, you know, anyway. Right. It's already here, but our feelings are not good tools to measure by, right? right. They're not very accurate. That's all. Yeah. It's already here, it's just that the fact that I feel or don't feel doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> In the big scheme of things, it doesn't mean anything. So what if I feel this way and I feel that way? N not to reject feelings, it's just that it doesn't, it's not an accurate tool by which to measure and come to conclusion about reality. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the whole nirvana is already here. It's the same point that Dogen makes that you already have enlightenment. Um, but is it is the difference that the delusion consists in self-clinging, and if you're able to move away from that, then it sort of uncovers what's already here. Is that the, the, the correct way to sort of frame it? That you uncover it? You have to uncover it? That, that, the, that, that, that nirvana's already here, enlightenment's already here, but it's, it's just your delusive self-clinging or ego-clinging that prevents you from, from experiencing that or, or knowing it. The work is not in searching for it. The work is in not falling into the secondary. It's not that there's no enlightenment. What can be done about falling into the secondary? Yeah, there is. It's just, and it's not that we have to search. So how do we? Why is it that we don't experience it, right? Yeah. And Dogen says that in Tukanza Zengi. The, world is, the, world, the way is perfect and unhindered, right? It's not. Right. But as soon as the mind moves, it is as far as heaven and earth. Right? That's the distance. Because the mind moves, well, not because it moves, it moves and then we believe it and then we follow it. Then we are separated. Right? So then that's the work on not falling into the second. <coughs> or first recognizing that we fall into the second. Right? What did Dogen say when he came back from, from China? Do you remember? They asked him, what did you learn? Everybody? Eyes are oh, horizontal, nose is vertical. vertical. <laughs> right. That's what he discovered. Travel to China, spend five years, rough conditions, realize that nose is, is horizontal, vertical and eyes are horizontal. Back on um, page 232, yes. um, there's the um, section on the bottom of the page, um, instead of stressing freedom from perceptions, which seems to be the concern with delusions and samsara, um, as Subhuti does, the Buddha stresses freedom from fear, 
the absence of a psychological or emotional trauma from believing a doctrine that turns out to be devoid of any doctrine, and that the Buddha calls the best of doctrines. Why is it traumatic um, to realize? Why is it, the teachings are rad, teachings radical, right? What he's talking about is radical. And it's interesting that the word trauma is used there, right? It is traumatic experience. Right, trauma is the destruction, or the feared destruction of the self. And radical means to get at the root of something. So it, is, it is twisting you from being upside down to right side up. Mm -hmm. And it changes everything. without any guarantee. You don't get visions of the Buddha or um, yeah, it's no you don't get to eat the Buddha. And, uh, we actually get rid of the visions of the Buddha, which is <laughs> not a bad thing, right? So let's just a couple of minutes, we wrap up this uh, chapter. The next time we, we begin with a new one. Bill Boulder says, once again, the Buddha reminds us that this teaching does not come from Buddhas. Rather, Buddhas come from this teaching. Very powerful lines, right? It's not this teaching, right? Again, the Buddha reminds us that this teaching does not come from Buddhas. So we don't have to follow anybody. The teachings produce Buddhas. So following the teachings and embodying the teachings, Buddhas manifest. The Buddhahood manifests. So this teaching is the diamond body, the Dharmakaya, the body of truth which Buddhas realize and teach to others. And Seng Chao says, a place isn't conscious. The reason it is venerated is because the teaching is there. The way rests in people to shoulder. That's what that means. We are the teachings. We are the practice. This reminds me that when we first came into this building, you know, the, the dojo, when we moved from Oakland to here, uh, it was just a, this building was renovated inside to, to suit our needs and our purpose. And I remember the first class, the first few classes I taught here, it didn't feel like a dojo. It didn't feel like anything. It didn't feel like a practice place. It felt empty. There was a kamiza, and as we have now, like the Okano, and uh, we followed the, the practice as we always follow it, but it felt empty. And it took a while for something to develop. And then over time, that place we call that wall, we call the kamiza, came to life. But it came to life because of our practice, not because we put together some piece of wood or we put a statue of, of the Buddha on the altar. That doesn't mean anything. It's the way we practice that. So our, our life, our blood actually flows in that. Same with the map, same with the walls and the ceilings. It's just a building. It's the same with the house, right? You build a new house, it feels empty. Once the family moves in and starts living there, then it starts to have a character. It comes to life. And it's a very good way to see the teachings. You know, if we don't uphold it, there's nothing there. If we don't practice it, there is no practice. 
Yeah, there is something to be said to that, and, and we don't really talk about it a lot um, because we tend to talk about intellectual concepts more than anything else, mm -hmm. but just the, the, the energy that people create in spaces, mm -hmm. you know, the physical energy, the good energy, the negative energy, you know, it, it's so important, um, I, I believe, um, to actually, to, to actualize the things that we're talking about because, you know, we talk about non-dwelling, we talk about, you know, um, not being fixed in the self and, and all these, these very detailed intellectual concepts. Yeah. But really just to, 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 from a physical perspective, to really try to embody it at the simplest level and just give off good energy. Right? It's so important. And that's what creates places like this. You know, I can't tell you how many times, how many people walked by, you know, came up here and said, wash the glass. You know, those who stayed on this day, that doesn't matter. But almost everybody says the same thing. This place feels amazing. Mm -hmm. There's this amazing energy. It, it, they cannot put their finger on it. They don't know what it is. And it doesn't matter. They don't have to call it anything. It's just that they feel it. They come up the stairs, they walk in and you see their eye, their face just lit up. People that know nothing about practice, for this Aikido's and nothing about practice, but it, they cannot help but react to what we are cultivating here. I remember, it's funny when you, that you mentioned that, I remember when I first walked in, it's a feeling of cultivation and growth and purity that I was feeling. You know, I walked into other martial arts places, and again, you know, they have a mar the martial aspect, and they have their own energy, but this place, when I walked into this place, it was like walking into a place where you know that you're going to grow and you're safe to grow. I felt like That's home, me too. Yeah. You feel home, but also you feel like you want to pay attention. Yeah. You want yeah. to appreciate. It's just like this resonance here. You want to stop and take a look. You just want to feel it. Mm -hmm. Right? And something expands as a result of that. Right? Yeah, you can feel it after when we sit after yeah. a, a, an Aikido class. Yeah. Yeah. There is a, a different kind of energy right. in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it echoes, it echoes, you know, our practice, our own experiences echo what the sutra is saying. So as old as it is, it's actually not. It's all timeless. Because we're the same. Thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three is the same. So, good. All right. We did well with that. It's good. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. We'll yeah. just keep going. It's going to take us ten years. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. One kalpa. Yes. Okay. All right. We can afford one kalpa. <laughs> Bodhisattva vows. Page one, please. Bodhisattva vows for all, all,
respectfully remind you, life and death are of supreme importance. Time quickly passes by and opportunity is lost. Each of us must strive to awaken, awaken. Take heed, do not squander your life.